Welcome to the Conquer and Win podcast, where men learn how to conquer all challenges and win at life, develop self-mastery, and get success lessons from powerful guests to enrich your journey as a man. Today's special guest was a former FBI negotiator and is the author of Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. Christopher dealt with international terrorists and kidnappers during his career and now brings you the secrets to having a more powerful influence on others and the best strategies to negotiate in your personal life, business, or career. For our audience who uh, isn't uh, aware of your work yet, and they will be now, how did you get, like you were, you were an FBI negotiator, and this is how you, I think, learned and also came up with a lot of the tactics you use in uh, negotiations, which is what your book is about, uh, Never Split the Difference. Like how, in your own words, how did you get into FBI negotiations? Well, first, uh, you, you don't go in the, uh, in the FBI specifically to become a hostage negotiator. It's a, you got to be an FBI agent first. Uh, you, you might, when you come in, you might want to be a hostage negotiator. And of course I didn't, I hadn't, I didn't, I didn't know anything about it at the time. Actually, what I was interested in when I came into the FBI, I was, I was SWAT, um, and which either one of those is an additional duty. It's a extracurricular activity, if you will. Um, an additional specialty that you can have in re, in addition to being an investigator of whatever kind of crimes you're working. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I had been slated to go to the SWAT team with the uh, Kansas City, Missouri Police Department, where I was a police officer. And I, in fact, did go to the SWAT team uh, when I was in Pittsburgh. I was on a FBI Pittsburgh SWAT team. Got transferred to New York, uh, re-injured, uh, you know, started spreading the news. I'm leaving today. Went to New York. Mm. Uh, and uh, re-injured, uh, re-aggravated uh, an old knee injury and, and had my, uh, my knee worked on again. And, you know, there's a limit to how many times you can put a knee back together. And uh, I hadn't reached the limit yet, and I didn't want to reach it. And I, and I had re-injured it on the stress of training for SWAT, you know, for all intents and purposes. And I tried out for the FBI's version of uh, the Navy SEALs, which is the FBI hostage rescue team. Okay. And that is a full-time SWAT job. You train. If you make the team, you train year-round. That is all you do. Um, and it's not an additional duty. Uh, re-injured the knee, and, but still wanted crisis response because I like when things have to be done you know we can't sit around and think about this we have to make a decision we have to make do an action and so since i was going to give a um, swat up as an additional duty i thought you know we got hostage negotiators i don't know what those guys do but how hard could it be <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know i literally thought look i could talk to terrorists yeah actually how hard is that how hard is that and like many things that look easy on the surface in reality the complexity if you're into it I mean, it's incredibly it's in-depth stuff. It's emotional intelligence being practiced at its highest level. Yeah. And so uh, I went to the head of the uh, the negotiation team in uh, FBI New York. Uh, as, uh, tough, tough as nails. Uh, very competent, uh, wonderful woman, Amy Bondaro. And she kind of looked down her, her nose at me over her glasses. And it's like, yeah, you want to be a hostage negotiator? She said, yeah, everybody wants to be a hostage negotiator. Uh, everybody wants to do that. What 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 are your qualifications? I didn't have any, not one. Mm-hmm. She asked me a bunch of questions, and finally she said, "No, you know, you're not qualified. You can't make the team." And I was like, eh, "You know, I'm sure I didn't stamp my feet, but I felt like a little kid. You know, come on, there's got to be something I could do." And she she said, "You know, as a matter of fact, there is. Go volunteer to suicide hotline. Now, until you've done that, just stop bothering me. Leave me alone." 
And uh, I went and volunteered at the hotline, and I came back to her about five months later, and she was shocked, um, which is what many people who give great advice are shocked. <laughs> most people don't follow your advice. Yeah. You, you know, you want to you recruit a mentor, ask somebody who knows, and then do what they tell you to do. And interestingly enough, that person will tend to look out for you. I, when I recontacted Amy to put that story in, in, in my book, she said, you know, I think I told a thousand people to do that, and two of them did. You were one of them. So she was blown away that I, that I had taken her advice. And, and uh, uh, crisis hotline, suicide hotline, I mean, that is a master class in emotional intelligence. How to get to the heart of the situation quickly. Like the first thing that, that shocked me, stunned me when I, when I volunteered there was they said, you got 20 minutes with each caller. And if it takes you longer than 20 minutes with a suicidal person, you're doing it wrong. Mm. A, you know, that's a great thing about in personal relationships and business relationships. You know, emotional intelligence, tactical empathy, empathy saves time. Most people see it as just like, let me give you a hug and we'll both cry together. It's not that. It's insightful dialing in with somebody else. I mean, really, really connecting with people fast. And it saves time. And that's how I got onto the hostage negotiation team. And then I was thrilled with it. I loved it. It's, it's so powerful. And I ended up, you know, going, then finally going full-time as a running the program with a small cadre of other guys. And my end of it was to be in charge of all our international kidnapping response. So uh, I can get you a good deal on a kidnapping if you need <laughs> Well, that's good. that's good to hear if I ever need one of those. Hopefully you're not going to be needing those services anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever like go when you first started out in the um, in the uh, suicide hotline? Because that, that sounds like something that could be potentially very tough and, and uh, maybe a little bit traumatic at times. Because you're dealing with people who are on the edge. They're obviously calling as a kind of a um, a last line of, of hope. There, you know, maybe get a little uh, perk so they don't uh, jump off the bridge or whatever it may may do. Did you ever have any calls that you just couldn't get through to them? Uh, I didn't. Uh, well, you know, per se, you know, sometimes <clears throat> I had one call where talking to someone on the hotline was part of this guy's uh, death journey, if you will, a suicidal journey. And um, interestingly enough, you know, I was there to learn a skill. I was there for mercenary reasons, and I ended up loving it because of the missionary in me, which you know, I say the best negotiation skill satisfies both the mercenary in you and the missionary in you. Both the, the mercenary, you know, almost sociopathic, if you will. You're doing it because it works. Yeah. The missionary, because it's the right thing to do. It's good for the other side. And if mercenaries and missionaries agree, you know, like they say, if two out of three doctors agree, then you're on the right track. So, first of all, I was there for mercenary reasons. I wanted to learn the skill. I loved it because it was helping people so the the one uh guy that i'm thinking of and, and you know he he called me he called on the phone he says i want you to know i want you to listen to me die so from his tone of voice and everything he said and then his subsequent actions it was back when uh call you know we didn't have cell phones like we have today but we you know we did have call holding and so i start to talk to him and he puts me on hold Damn. now one thing that I, because other people, he's called a bunch of people and said, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill myself. He wants people to call in and he wants, to, he's trying to prove the world is so futile. Part of his plan 
is to prove to you that you can't stop me. I'm going to get somebody who's supposed to be able to stop, and I'm and and this guy's just going to engage in a futile effort. So since now, and he's laid this out to me, puts me on hold several times. He gets back on the phone with me, and I say, "Hey, look, you know, I, I'll talk to you. But you, you can't put me on hold. I mean, how am I supposed to help you if you put me on hold?" And he goes, "Hold on a minute. Somebody else is calling. <laughs> puts me on hold again." So I hang up on the guy, and sure enough, he calls right back in, and he, he said, you hung up on me. And I said, yeah. I said, you know, I'll talk with you, but if you're not going to talk with me, if you only want to victimize me by making me a witness, I mean, you've got to stay on the phone with me, because his, his plan was to victimize me also. Now, if, if my best move at that point in time is to withdraw, if the only thing I can dis- do to disrupt this guy's plan is to withdraw. That is my only move. I can't scream at him. I can't call him names. He won't stay on the line long enough for me to develop rapport. He's intentionally breaking rapport with me. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, you have to read the situation for what it is, not what you want it to be. In any communication, I mean, em- and why empathy is a mercenary skill. It's about understanding what's there, not what you wish was there. And if my only possibility for disrupting this guy is to hang up that that was the only move i had he called me back two more times we went through it two more times and he put me on hold again and i hung up again and that was the last i ever heard of him wow so do you do you know whatever happened to him where he just he disappeared off the face of the uh the map uh yeah no idea uh that was in that was in the days we didn't even have caller id in those days i mean this is this is in the dark ages this is (laughs) in the days (laughs) Well, the internet. So um, I didn't even have a way. We didn't even have a way to trace calls at that point in time. You know, I couldn't. I couldn't have followed up. The, you know, I hate that he left me one option. But you, you know, in any communication, you got to understand what your options are, and that was the option. And um, then I did whatever I could do to just. I, I used whatever card he was going to deal me to disrupt his plan, and and, and that that was that was it. It's interesting because I, I believe Tony Robbins talks about uh, disrupting people too, like disrupting their thought pattern. They, they start going through the cycle, and instead of going along with it, you've got to interrupt it in order to make a change. And it's yeah, pat- like- specifically design pattern interrupt. Yeah, and, and there's so much, um, you know, that I'm in sync with on Tony Robbins. Uh, I think he's he is, his emotional intelligence is insanely through the roof. And uh, he applies empathy on a regular basis, and then he demonstrates it and makes it work. So, yeah, I'm a big Tony Robbins fan. So, what would be a good example, like from a, let's say another call or, or um, hostage negotiation you did when you were actually in the FBI, where you had to interrupt their pattern in order to get some kind of progress? So, you know, they're trying to get you to go along with their plan, but you're like, no, 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 this is how it's going to work, and they're like, oh, and they follow well, it instead. You need to effectively do that, but you don't directly do it. I mean, you know, the best, the quickest way to get a point across is let the other side figure it out rather than telling them. You know, there's some pretty good data out there that if, if you want somebody to get an idea by telling them, you have to tell them no less than 19 times because there's a problem with telling somebody something. It violates their autonomy. It violates their self-image. And in fact, even if you're not, violating their autonomy and their self-image by ordering them or telling them you know because if i tell you something then i'm projecting that i'm smarter than you i'm right you're wrong and it's there's both simultaneous self-image and autonomy issues that the people will die over unnecessarily 
Yeah. But it takes a lot less time to get them to figure out that's where you're coming from. Or maybe in uh, a subconscious way provoke them into saying something that they didn't expect to say. And I, there was a bank robbery with hostages in, in Brooklyn, New York, um, that I was, a, I was a negotiator. I was the second negotiator on the phone, first bank robber to surrender, surrendered to me personally outside. Now, I realized that in movies and TV, we see either Bruce Willis or Eddie Murphy getting bank robberies with hostages like every other movie. And they're talking people out. And it's one of those things, Hollywood makes us think that they're bank robbers with hostages that happens every day in five or six cities in the U.S., in reality, a bank robbery with hostages, with hostages now, where there is negotiation, where the bad guys are surrounded, and you talk them out, that happens in the entire country once about every 20 years in the whole country. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a unicorn event. Um, and, you know, by the grace of the, the, the universe and the powers that be, I happen to get involved in one in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I get on the phone. The first guy's highly manipulative. In, in fact... The first guy is using a series of negotiation tactics that I see in business all the time these days and that are real common in business. Um, And, you know, he's always deferring to somebody else. That's a sign of somebody really powerful at the table. We didn't know it at the time. He kept saying, I can't do this. These other guys I'm with are very violent. You know, I'm afraid of these guys. Uh, anybody that blames it's a common business negotiation tactic is say, look, my board of directors, I can't do this. My board of directors won't let me or my CEO or my CFO or, you know, whoever's not there. If that person is blaming somebody who's out of the room, that's an influential person or trying to avoid being backed into a corner. This guy's doing that. Through the course of the conversation, we find out some information about him. He's hiding his name from us. It stops it does two things by keeping not even letting us know his first name. Um, first of all, he's still trying to get away and he doesn't want to give us any evidence. And secondly, even more importantly, if you don't give me your first name, you're stopping me from developing rapport with you because you know, I want to use your first name. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to say, Hey Eddie, how you doing, man? Like, you know, Eddie, that's Chris, Chris, come on. It's Chris over here on the other end. I'm going to want to exchange first names. Make it personal. Make it personal. Make you see me as a person. Let you know that I see you as a distinct and unique individual on a planet. As soon as you block that, or conversely, if you can exploit it, it's a problem as well. You have to be careful overusing somebody's name. Anyway, I f- we find out what the guy's name is based on it. We find his van. We run down to registration. We go to his neighbor's house. We bring a neighbor. They voice ID him. Now it's my job to confront him on a phone. So as soon as I, I, I said, hey, we've got a van out here. You know, we're trying to find out uh, who the owner is. We have identified the owner of every van out here except this one, which now startles him. But I'm not, I'm not attacking him. I'm just laying aside a little bit at a time. And uh, he, says, he says, yeah, well, we only got one van. And I'm, I'm a little startled, but I, I did what's called a mirror. I said, you only have one van? Repeating what he just said back word for word, upward inflecting, like inquisitive. Mm-hmm. You only have one van? He goes, yeah, you know, we got more than one van. You have more than one van? Yeah, well, you chased my driver away. We chased your driver away? Now, I'm only mirroring him because I'm confused. 
And this is this is the single best tactic in any given negotiation work when you're confused. If you mirror the other side, they're going to come back with more information and add to it. And and then he says, I said, we chased your driver away. He said, yeah. When he saw the police, he cut. He split. Now at this point in time, we had no idea that the getaway van driver has escaped from the scene. We have no idea this person exists, that there was anybody directly involved in a, in a commission of the robbery, attempted robbery, that's no longer there. This ends up being critical information against the bad guys when we go to court. And if he hadn't been blurting it out involuntarily as a, as a result of the meetings, uh, the mirroring, I might have said, you know, how many of you are there? And he, you know, he'd have heard a question and he'd have ducked it. And if I'd have said, was somebody driving a van? He'd have heard the question and he'd have ducked it. But there's this, this crazy skill that we call mirroring, which is not the mirroring that you've heard in every other kind of negotiation. It triggers quick involuntary responses from people. They just react to it. They just react to it. There's, it's a, it's a, there's a triggering mechanism in the brain. I mean, when people mirror me and I know they're doing it, I have trouble not responding. I, you know, I may be the toughest guy on the entire planet to mirror, and I'm probably going to, I'll start to answer and I'll have to catch myself. And I'm the only one that could, you know, since I do it all the time, uh, I'm, I feel how compelling it is. And I'm like, wow, this is even working on me. This is so powerful. <laughs> so that was, uh, you know, that, that, was, uh, that, that was how I got a guy to give us information involuntarily in a high-stakes situation. Was that one of the most uh, satisfying negotiations you've had? Because I know you, you, it seems like you've had a lot of uh, international negotiations as well for uh, dealing with um, uh, hostage situations with terrorists. As yeah, well. satisfying is, is, a, is, is a, probably the most satisfying one was we, um, I had just changed our proof-of-life strategy, our strategy for proof-of-life in kidnappings. And we applied it in the next two kidnappings. One was in the Philippines against a serial killer, lone kidnapper. And we, and we created a rescue. And we rescued the vic we, with the Philippine National Police. We got enough, helped them get enough information through the course of the conversation, which is the real reason to talk to terrorists. Because it's the richest source of intelligence you can possibly get on these guys. Mm-hmm. And he'd made enough damaging admissions. We gained the upper hand. We had con total control. And the killer on the other side, who was a killer, had no idea that we'd gained total control of conversation. He was going along with it. He knew he was out of control, but he didn't blame us. He actually said under his breath in the middle of one of the conversations, wow, nobody's ever dealt with me like this before. Just like that. We end up rescuing that hostage. And that was enormously satisfying. And then the, and the one just before that was a kidnapping in Ecuador. We applied the same strategies. Again, it was a 90-degree turn in how we were doing proof of life. And uh, Pepe Escobar, who's a friend of mine now, uh, he escaped in Ecuador. He, the space we created in that negotiation, beginning the bad guys to drop their guard and disrupting their pattern, um, uh, Pepe escaped. And that was that was an enormously satisfying as well. 
Now, it seems like uh, I think the perception for most people about uh, hostage negotiations is if somebody's been kidnapped, that the kidnapper has all the cards because they, they have the the valued um, with a person there. And they, you feel like if you if you kind of make any demands on them or you negotiate with them, well, they could just end it all right there. How do you deal with that kind of mindset? Because I, I think you've also, from what I read in your book, um, a lot of the people you were uh, servicing felt that way too they just wanted to give all given to all the demands right away yeah well you know leverage like beauty is in the eye of the beholder like if, you, if you're talking to me at all i've got leverage now i just don't need to get crazy with it you know i you, i don't need you to overtly know i'm in charge we used to we used to say the secret to gaining the upper hand in the negotiation is giving the illusion the other side the illusion of control now the international kidnapping negotiator the bad guys negotiator which is a profession if you've ever seen the movie Man on Fire with Denzel Washington, you know, throughout that kidnapping, uh, the good guy, the bad guy negotiator is this mysterious person called The Voice. <laughs> and The Voice, that was his job. His job was to negotiate on behalf of the kidnappers. So, they, you know, for, uh, to us, it's horrible. To them, it's a job. So, uh, and, and why do I make that comparison? Because... <laughs> In many cases, the procurement negotiator, the contracts negotiator in, in business, international business, does, doesn't American, uh, Middle East, uh, India, the international procurement negotiator in international business is the kidnapping negotiator. It's the exact same animal. Reacts the same way. You know, they're a little heavy-handed. They make a lot of threats. They try to push you around. And they kind of got one move. The procurement negotiator will bash you, will, will uh, almost every salesperson on the planet, if they find out procurement is on the other side, they start shaking in their boots because they know procurement's going to beat them up. It's, a, it's the same cat that uh, I dealt with in kidnappings. And again, the secret to gaining the upper hand in a negotiation is giving the other side the illusion of control. Let's understand where our leverage is. Let's be deferential. I love, love, love the power of deference. I can get away with almost anything if I'm deferential to you. Throwing a little bit of passive aggression, you know, a little bit of tactical empathy, and the next thing you know, you know, the kidnapper negotiator or the procurement guy on the other end of the line is scratching his head, saying to himself, you know, somehow I feel out of control here, but I don't really know what it is. <laughs> and now I got you. Now yeah. I got you. We're gonna make my deal. Is there ever the fear, though, that they, they kind of might uh, catch on to you and then, uh, you know, there'll be a little bit of backlash? Well, and that's how you adapt. That's how you adapt in the moment. I mean, you, know, you, you come up with a basic game plan, like tactical empathy. And then, look, if you start attacking me, if you, I'm going to say, look, man, you're scaring the heck out of me. I mean, you're in charge. You know, you're in charge. What am I supposed to do? You're in charge. And it's like more of that deference right there. It's, it's deference, you know, and, and their one move is to establish control. If I know what their one move is, which is to establish control, then I'm going to go, okay, you're in charge. You know, what do you want me to do? And I'm going to lull them to sleep with my tone of voice. And, you know, what's somebody going to say? How dare you be deferential to me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're, you're too nice. You're, you're giving me too much, uh, too much deference. Yeah, no, no, nobody's ever going to come out and say that. Yeah, nobody's going to say, stop being deferential. <laughs> 
What would you say is the biggest mistake made in like average everyday negotiations? Because so I think um, just like the, the title of your book suggests, Never Split the Difference, uh, very often splitting the difference isn't actually a good deal. You, you end up, you're just kind of giving in. Or, or like a, another thing I heard in your book, the, the wimp-win deal would seem to be one of the, one of the norms. Oh, yeah. Splitting the difference is is among the th- many things that are so bad. I mean, I think I think the first biggest problem is, you know, the fear of letting the other side go first. Um, you know, every the the great uh, communication guidance from Stephen Covey has always been: seek first, to understand, then be understood. And everybody goes like, yeah, yeah, sure, but I want to get my point across. Like, wait a minute, you go second. Now, you go second for two reasons. Number one, the other side just might lay something out that you really want. And you don't want to eliminate that possibility because it's, it's best to take something that they've laid out as opposed to something you've demanded. Why is that best? What makes it best is whether or not you're actually going to get it. It has to do with delivery. Like when I was, when I was negotiating, negotiating kidnappings, you know, and we negotiated ransoms because we're trying to run a sting operation. And we're going to try and set them up with the payment. Same way that bait money in a bank sets up a bank robber. Yeah, of course you give bank robbers money with a die pack so it explodes on them and so you can chase them after they've left the bank. Of course you do. You just don't give them all the money in the bank. You just give them a little bit because it's evidence. So that's a separate negotiation. Like I could, in any kidnapping, I could agree to the bad guy's full price right off the bat, which I never would do, but then just try and get your money. You mm-hmm. know, uh, and, and, I, and I, I've always joked around this in business. You want $10 million for that? Okay, you can have your $10 million. I'll pay you a dollar a year. <laughs> and most people don't understand that implementation is a second negotiation. Carl Icahn is famous for this. Carl Icahn is famous for knowing that when people have gotten their price, they drop their guard. And at best, maximum the negotiation is 60, only 65% over, maybe more like 35% over. And if you knock yourself out getting your price, or if I knocked you out getting your price, then the follow-on terms, I'm in complete control. I got you. You haven't got any energy left. And so we would always take this approach, and, and deference wears you out. Deference in a kidnapping wears you out. Deference in a business negotiation wears the other side out. Now we're going to follow on on, on the rest of the on the rest of the terms. And I think I've gone off on so many tangents. I forgot what you asked me in the first place. <laughs> no, I, I think we're going down a, a good path here. But I think the original question was how uh, I guess the biggest mistakes people make oh. usually in everyday negotiations. Right, right, all right. So you got to let the other side go first because um, you want them to feel they've done well. Um, you also, you want to build rapport and letting the other side go first builds rapport because you're going to listen to them. And m- most people, I, I, I had a friend of mine, he said, worked for the Department of State. He said, yeah, I went to negotiation training. They said the first rule was always make sure you've got your point across to the other, other side. Well, while that sounds like it makes sense, what the implementation of that is, is you got two people trying to get their point across, which means nobody's listening. So the idea that you got to get your point across or you have to pitch your value proposition. Well, it seems intellectually sound 
you've got no data yet to understand for sure that your value proper, proposition is on track. So, you know, Stephen Covey's advice is actually for mercenaries. Let the other side go first, seek first to understand so you can now recalibrate your entire approach and make a much more intelligent approach. Then go second. On top of that, if the other side feels understood, that they are now winning, willing to listen because they've gotten their point across. So it's kind of a, uh, there's a double benefit to letting the other side go first. Vast majority of people are horrified to do that. Yeah, I guess the alternative is just butting heads and nobody gets anywhere. Nobody gets what they want. That's exactly it. Exactly. We're coming to a close here, uh, but uh, you have a uh, program uh, that you wanted to talk about a little bit. Yeah, well, you know, um, I, would, I would love for people to buy the book. Uh, Never Split the Difference, Best Prices on Amazon. Check out the reviews. Uh, um, my, the reviews of my book have passed getting to yes. But, you know, a short, sweet way that's a great gateway to everything that a Black Swan group can help you to become a better negotiator, build a better life for your family is our newsletter, which comes out once a week. It's called The Edge, and it's a short, concise article, three to five minutes. People love reading it first thing in the morning because then it, set, it, it helps them like get focused to negotiate well all day. Here's some reminders. It's like doing a warm-up for your day. And the best way to, uh, to subscribe is via text, and you can text the word FBI empathy and make that all one word. Don't let your autocorrect put a space between FBI and empathy and make it lowercase FBI empathy, all one word, no space in the middle. Send that as a text to the number 22828. That's 22828. And that is the gateway to everything we do. It tells you about training sessions that we may be having close by to you at some point in time. It tells you about free programs. It it tells you about different sorts of training that we give. It's a great gateway. And almost every one of our readers ends up subscribing in one way or another because it's a great supplement to the book. And it, it's very specific. And you'll find stuff in there that's specific to your situation. No, I, I agree. I'm actually, I can personally recommend it because I'm, I'm subscribed as well. And I've, uh, as I mentioned, when I contacted you, I've listened to the audiobook version of your book uh, at least four times now because it's actually re- really valuable and has a lot of practical information, not just for business, because most of uh, the interview we've talked about um, the uh, experience that you had in the FBI doing hostage negotiations. But a lot of this stuff really applies to day to day situations as well as business and even w- within relationships, right? Because it's all about influence. All right, so did you read it four times because you liked reading it or just because it's hard to read? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good question. No, uh, it was actually very easy to read. I, f- I found the information to be um, uh, easy to understand. Like it, there was nothing very, nothing super complex. It was, it, it just made sense. But I just I read it multiple times or listened to it multiple times just because it made sense to uh, understand the information more. I think, I think what is the uh, stat? Like when we read a book one time through, we only understand about t- or only remember about 10% of it. So ah. I'm not sure how it works for audio, but I, I figured I was missing lots of key pieces. And actually it was every time I listened to it, I got, I, I got a new piece of information that I didn't remember from the first, second or third time. Awesome. I'm really happy to hear that. That's kind of exactly why, you know, I had my co-writer, Tal Raz. He structured the book, and I think it's an extremely readable book. 
Oh yeah, no, definitely. I love it. I actually use it in my own business as well. Um, and for stuff I even teach my guys, because I'm, I'm a dating and a confidence coach and a lot of stuff I teach is just, it's just all social skills, right? And so from your book, a lot of these <laughs> things work for day-to-day kind of situations, normal, normal everyday life. More than one guy has gotten a woman's phone number using stuff from my book. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I think uh, anybody listening as well right now will benefit from it. It doesn't matter if you're in business. Uh, this stuff works for, you know, even, even among friends. Because you're, you're trying to influence somebody even to go to a movie. There's different ways to go about it that are going to work better than other ways. Yeah. And develop, de- build long-term relationships, right? Exactly. Making connections, even mirroring. Mirroring has a, a great effect as well because people feel, you know, like you said, you're talking about people giving more information, but it has uh, other effects as well, which are uh, very nice for creating connections. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. I'm happy to hear that. Thank you. And Chris, uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Eddie, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on as a guest. I'm honored by it. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Conquer and Win podcast. Conquer your challenges and become a stronger man in life and business by joining the community on conquerandwin.com. Until next time, stay strong.